1: I'm Gabriella Hoffman, and you're listening to another episode of District of Conservation. On today's episode, we are joined by Mike Schmidt. He is the owner and purveyor of Solitude Ranch and Outfitters in Hewlett, Wyoming, and he's also a Wyoming Game Fishing Department Commissioner in the 3rd District. Here's a little backgrounder on Mike if you guys want to know more about him. Mike Schmidt is the founder, president, and CEO of SOS Well Services LLC. He has 40 years of experience in oil field services, including managing rustabout crews, constructing wealth field roads and drill pads, managing trucks, equipment and hundreds of employees, and administering complex oil and gas projects. His career began by working for various oil field related companies. He founded Schmidt Oilfield Services, Inc. in nineteen eighty-four. This successful company was sold to First Energy Services in June 2000. Mike remained with the company, serving as president and COO. During his time with First Energy Services, Mike was an integral part of the team that acquired five more oilfield-related companies with operations throughout the Rocky Mountain region and Alaska, where he managed over 400 employees and hundreds of pieces of equipment and vehicles. Eventually, the company was sold to Basic Energy Services in October 2003. While working for First Energy Services, Mike founded SOS Well Services as a workover rig company. In 2006, Mike started to expand SOS Well Services to create the multi-million dollar operation that exists today. During the time building his first oilfield company, Mike also founded Schmid Development Co as a company that builds, sells and leases commercial properties. This company still operates today and holds properties in Wyoming, Nebraska and Michigan. In late 2000, after the sale of his company to First Energy Services and while working for them as their president and COO, he purchased the Watts Ranch near Devil's Tower. Mike continued to purchase and lease land there and eventually founded Solitude Ranch and Outfitters LLC. The ranch today consists of 8,500 acres of prime Black Hills land. The ranch has a reputation for quality white-tailed deer, mule deer, and turkey hunting, as well as raising Angus cattle. Today, Mike oversees the operations of all three of his companies, as well as serving as the Wyoming Game and Fish Commissioner, appointed by Governor Mead in 2017 to serve a six-year term. He also serves as a board of directors member for the Wyoming State 4-H Foundation. Mike was also one of the organizing members of the now successful Old West Turkey Shot that is held in Hewlett, Wyoming every May. The event was organized to promote turkey hunting in Wyoming and to raise funds for the Greater Hewlett Community Center, which serves the rural ranching families and community of Hewlett, Wyoming. The event raises over $100,000 a year for this cause. Mike was really interesting and was a gracious host having us all at his ranch where I hunted and harvested successfully, I should add, my first whitetail doe. He's a repository of information. He knows a lot about Wyoming, about multiple use management. He talked at length about how he and a few others in the Game Commission in the Jackson, Wyoming area helped mitigate a crisis relating to government agents killing non native mountain goats in Grand Teton National Park and how he participated in those culling efforts and why he thanks Secretary Bernhardt for stepping in and intervening in that case, and just so much more. He is really nice. I got to enjoy meeting him and his wife and everyone else affiliated with the ranch. It was beautiful just experiencing hunting there with Devil's Tower in the background and sunset and all the different animals. There were lots of turkeys, white-tailed deer, uh, some barnyard cats, and it was a great time, and I figured I would interview the host And the person who generously opened their doors for us to hunt there and kind of poke his brain more in detail about conservation, energy issues, and much more. So here's my conversation with Mike Schmidt, owner of Solitude Ranch and Outfitters, and also game commissioner for District 3 in Wyoming. Let me know what you think. We're joined by Mike Schmidt, who is the owner of Solitude Ranch, also a Wyoming game commissioner Mm -hmm. and lifelong hunter conservationist and he has been hosting us here this weekend and his ranch has served as a backdrop for me to take my first doe which we'll talk about more and and i'll talk about more in other pieces but we're really grateful to sit down with mike and and mike thank you so so much for obliging me to to do a podcast and and some other materials so mike why don't you talk about what led you to hosting this event here this weekend Also, talk about the symbolism behind the ranch, what Solitude Ranch means, and just your overall feelings.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, I'll start with the symbolism of the ranch. I mean, uh, I've been enjoying hunting in the Black Hills since 1978, since uh, uh, that fall. Some of my brothers and I came over here to uh, hunt white-tailed deer. We'd never done it before. Growing up in western Wyoming, at that point, there were were no white-tailed deer there, so... We came over here that fall and just really enjoyed the country, loved the beauty of this part of the state, and uh, we would come back every fall after that. And I felt, you know, as a young man that one day if I was, ever had the opportunity to own property, property here, 10 acres, 20 acres, 40 acres, and have a little hunting cabin on it would be unbelievable. Well, life has been good to my wife and I, and we've been successful, and I was able to purchase this ranch about 20 years ago. And uh, fulfill a dream that i 've had for a long time and uh, but the symbolism of the ranch, you know the Lakota Sioux were the the Native American tribe here. Um, we all know the story of them and the Black hills and what it meant to them, and I understand that now, I understand because I, f- I think I feel the same way in a lot of, a lot of ways, so um, my wife named the ranch the Solitude because it was it was uh, at the end of the road. Um, there's nothing up behind us here except the ranch in the Black Hills National Forest. It was very quiet, peaceful out here. Um, and, you know, it was just a, a, a dream that, that was fulfilled. And, and uh, we called it the solitude, and we've got a beautiful archway out there. And, and as a tribute to the Lakota Sioux, we uh, tried to find a name. Uh, the, the word solitude in their language, and that's the reason we have the Ani sign over bo- above the uh, archway coming into the ranch. Mm-hmm. So to kind of a tribute to them and why they love this land as much as we do.
1: And why did you want to host this hunting event this weekend?
0: Yeah, uh, well, I, Nephi, uh, I, I've known Rourke. I've hunted with Rourke Denver a couple of times in the past. And then Nephi, I met Nephi last spring. He was with Rourke, and they come up on a spring turkey hunt. And I was telling the guys at the time that, you know, in the fall of the year, as part of my management program here for deer, that I usually do a pretty good doe harvest to try to keep the the numbers of deer in check. And uh, if they were ever interested in doing something like that, then, you know, I'd welcome them back to do that. Well, Nephi took it serious. He called me a few months later and started talking about this veteran's hunt, and you know, the, the folks that he wanted to bring out here to maybe enjoy that and experience that kind of a, a hunt, and and I readily agreed to that. So we started putting the plans together to make this happen, and here we are a few months later, and we've got a great bunch of veterans here and uh, people that are very interesting to listen to and talk to about their past and the things that they've done for this country. And I don't know, Pam and I just feel like it's the least we could do for for people like that, that have done so much for us.
1: Absolutely, and just about everyone who's been hunting here this weekend has been successful with a doe, turkey, or some spike doe, apparently, right. <laughs> exactly.
0: as we've learned. Yeah, they, uh, I think everybody's taken at least one doe. You're, you're allowed to take up to four does here per hunter. Um, so everybody here has at least taken one doe, some two, um, as well as some turkeys as well in our fall turkey season. So it's been a very successful hunt. We've had some great weather. A little chilly right now, but as you can see the sun's still bright and but it's a it's a bit chilly out today.
1: Talk about what you do and, and uh how you got into hunting. We already covered a little bit about the ranch and mm-hmm. the purpose of this event, but but talk more so about how you got into all these activities and your work with the Game Commission.
0: Right, well as, as far as getting into hunting, I was, I was raised in a hunting family. Um, I was born in Detroit, Michigan and, and uh, uh, was there until I was 10 years old, until thank God my dad found Wyoming. Um, but uh, yeah, we were, we were born into a hunting family. Uh, it's just been a part of my life as long as I can remember. Um, I remember the days when, after we moved to Wyoming that I just could not wait until I hit that threshold age of 14 where I could actually chase big game with a rifle or bow in my hand. I followed all my older brothers in the woods for years, and my dad, so they taught me all the woodman, woodsmanship skills and, and, uh, that they knew. My dad was a very successful hunter in Michigan, um, very successful in Wyoming, uh, and we'd done the full gamut of it. I mean, we we harvested the animals. We done our own butchering, and then my mother was a superb cook. So, um, and she fixed and raised us on on wild game, venison, and fish, all hand caught by my dad and all of us boys. There's seven boys in my family and three girls. So, it's a
1: big family. Big family, yeah. <laughs> big Catholic family. So it's been family, a part yes. of my life. Big <laughs> Catholic family. So it's been
0: a big part of my life ever since I can remember. My entire life. And uh, as a result, I've uh, like I said, I was I was ten years old when my folks moved to Wyoming, and uh, I mean it was like uh, there was three of us left at home—an older brother, me, and one younger brother—and uh, it was like heaven for us. The fishing, the hunting, the outdoor activities that were available to us was just incredible. I think in 1969, when we came to Wyoming, the population of the state was about 300,000 people. Wow. We're not quite double that right now, 50-some years later, 52 years later. So um, so it's a great place for that. If you're, if you're into the outdoors, you're into hunting and angling, um, Wyoming is an awesome place to be.
1: Hence why it's called the Cowboy State, because That's there's right. that kind of independent spirit, right. pioneering spirit still alive here.
0: Exactly, it is, yeah. Wyoming is a very uh, very high in agriculture, cattle ranching mainly, farming, but cattle ranching, sheep ranching, farming. Cattle ranching being the king, a lot of cattle in Wyoming.
1: Mm-hmm, very much so, and we're your ranch is very close to Devil's Tower National right. Monument, which is the first national monument ever that's created. Right.
0: It was dedicated, I think, in September 1906 by President Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, I like to tell people that when you hunt the solitude ranch, you're hunting in the shadow of the first, the country's first national monument. So it's, uh, I mean, the the tower is. Visible from all parts of the ranch, and and it's just a, it's really a beautiful part of Wyoming, very unique from an, any other part of the state. Different landscapes, different climates, um, different trees and shrubs. everything. it's just a very very unique part of the state.
1: Yeah, it definitely contrasts where you primarily call home. That's right. Uh, and and here it's certainly more prairie. You see kind of redstone all over the place because I've primarily been to Jackson Hole. Uh, twice on two occasions and I was just in the South Dakota Black Hills region as well just across the border and it really is beautiful here we've seen some magnificent sunsets we've had some snow we've had some sunshine we've had some cloudy days so far in this trip and it really is such a beautiful corner of the state I like how kind of remote in a way it is and we're is. in the town of Hewlett right. and and all that and so you're kind of secluded and with everything going on it's kind of nice to be away have some solitude right. as exactly. the ranch obviously right. exactly. <laughs> indicates that you'll you'll experience here and yeah, I always encourage people to explore different parts of the country. And it's it's been such a wonderful opportunity to hunt your ranch mm-hmm. and to experience Wyoming hunting for the first time. I've done a little bit of fishing outside of Yellowstone National Park many, many years ago when I was a kid and a teenager. But like, it's so nice to come and actually hunt here because people have told me so much about it, about the opportunities, the different species, and actually with ease of, for new hunters, too, especially to kind of, take in their first big game animal. Right,
0: right. and that's really important for, hunter, for new hunters and young hunters. Um, this part of the state, well, Wyoming, everywhere in Wyoming, is, is we're blessed with over a million big game animals in the state. But this part of the state is very rich in white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, um, mountain lions, a few black bears, a lot of sharp-tailed grouse, and a lot of wild turkeys, Merriam turkeys, uh, subspecies. So it's a very game-rich part of the state, and those species—turkeys and white-tailed deer, especially—are uh, the the hunts are not difficult for those species, which makes them very important for youth and and new hunters. Because I believe that a youth hunter and a new hunter, they need to stay really engaged. And if I've been on hunts where you may not see an animal for a day or two, mm-hmm. and that's hard to keep the attention of a of a young hunter or even a new hunter and understand why this is fun. But when they come to a place like this where they're seeing animals all day long, they're seeing they may have a half a dozen opportunities to harvest an animal and, you know, for whatever reason that that opportunity slips away, but it keeps that interest up. And then the success level is high. And I think that's just as important. Because if young hunters go out or new hunters go out and they go out two or three times, especially if the weather's cold, it gets a little uncomfortable, and they're not successful, I believe that they're, they're going to lose that interest. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to have a game-rich environment with high success rates to, to get youth and new hunters involved in the, in the effort, which ultimately is the answer to all of our conservation is hunters and anglers.
1: Absolutely. And in your game commission work, you work out of kind of the Jackson Hole, Jackson region. And talk about your work and what you do exactly. When did you get started and
0: what are some of your responsibilities? Well, you know, I, I, uh, and the reason I'm on the, where the ranch is, is in the northeast corner of Wyoming. My business is in the southwest region of the state, part Mm -hmm. of the state. So I'm kind of catty corner from it's an eight hour drive between my permanent residence and the ranch. So my, my district with the game and fish is where my permanent residence is. I could not apply for the district here because it's not my permanent residence. So, um, like I say, I've always had an interest in wildlife. Um, I've been very fortunate in business. My wife and I have built a very successful oil and gas business in Southwest Wyoming. And, uh, I was at a uh, a uh, meeting years ago with uh, then-Governor Dave Friedenthal, came to our little town, and we were talking about issues of the day. And uh, I raised my hand and asked him, I said, what can what can somebody like me do about all of this stuff that we're talking about? And he looked directly at me and he said, get involved. And that really hit a nerve with me. And... Uh, at that point in my life, I was so involved with the business, I just I didn't think I could get involved and add any value. But as I got older and uh, my business grew, and I built a good management team, it gave me the opportunity where I could get involved. Mm-hmm. So when the district position came up for the Game and Fish Commission in, in my area, I applied. And it's an application process that you put in with the state. The governor then appoints a commissioner from the seven districts around the state. And he selected me. There was Governor Meade at the time. And uh, he put my name up. It went to the state senate. The state senate has to confirm. And they confirmed me. And I started my uh, commission role in uh, the spring of 2017. I'm about halfway through my six-year appointment. A little over halfway, actually.
1: That's very cool.
0: So, <clears throat> and
1: what have you seen in your role so far? Do you have to tackle like problem situations, not problem situations, and, and what's just kind of been your role?
0: Well, it's been an eye opener. The Game and Fish Commission is basically the the uh, conducts all the, the regulatory and oversight of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. Um, so it's really opened up my eyes. I mean, there's so many moving parts in this Wyoming Game and Fish Department. It's unbelievable. There's eight regional offices, 400 and some odd people that work within the department that the commission oversees. Um, We've got all of the hot-button issues in Wyoming when it comes to wildlife, grizzly bears, wolves, uh, wolverines, bighorn sheep, mountain goats, uh, elk, antelope, you know, all the big game species are here. Um, So it's it's a mixture of solutions for... Uh, personnel within the department uh, working with different uh, NGOs for solutions when it comes to wildlife problems and issues what's best what's not best we oversee all of the hunting season regulations and and uh, uh, bag limits on uh, for deer areas every area in the state um, we work with a lot of environmental groups over these hot button issues dealing with them constantly we um, it's just a. It's one of those positions that you could. I mean, as much time as you want to put into it, it it can absorb a lot of time, and that's what I like about it. Is it? There's just so many different things to worry about: housing issues for people, grizzly bear issues, conflicts with ranchers and mm-hmm. and hunters, and conflicts with wolves of ranchers and hunters, and how they impact their lives and their their ranching operations, loss of cattle, um, deer and elk damages. My district has, uh, there's 23 feed grounds, elk feed grounds in the state of Wyoming. Um, One of them is the National Elk Refuge in Jackson Hole, which the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission does not manage. But there's 22 state-run elk feed grounds within northwest Wyoming. Every one of them is in my district. Those are becoming hot-button issues because of the situations with CWD concern and, and disease transmission. CWD being a hot button issue within the elk herds themselves and how they could possibly decimate ungulate herds. Mm-hmm. Then we hit the reason, one of the reasons that the game and fish, um, the first reason we started elk feed grounds was because trying to keep elk from starving to death in the, in the long, cold Wyoming winters that the northwest part of the state is known for. But then it became more apparent that there was a lot of conflict with ranchers and elk. Elk would come out of the mountains. They'd be down in the lower elevations in competition with cattle on cattle ranches. Uh, And then the brucellosis issue came to Mm -hmm. pass, the disease that can be transmitted from elk to cattle that causes a, a cow to abort. So the feed grounds became more important for that to keep the elk from they're kind of in a transition zone where they come out of the high country rather than going all the way down to the ranchers and feeding in their hay fields and in their haystack next to their cattle. We built 22 feed grounds there where we hold them and we feed those elk in the wintertime and keep that separation to keep those conflicts low. So that's all in my district. It's just a myriad of things that are just issues and problems and and a lot of good things, too, mm-hmm. that come up that the commission gets to handle that helps hunters and anglers be more successful and, and increase bag limits and manage animals to where they're, we keep a healthy population of animals in front of them. So it's a very rewarding um, position to be in, especially for somebody like me that just loves the outdoors and wildlife.
1: Absolutely. And have you guys, <clears throat> have you independently noticed kind of a surge in this interest in hunting and fishing. I've asked people all across the country, closer to me, different states, but have you similarly observed just more people hunting and fishing, especially in this pandemic that we've had in the United States?
0: Absolutely. Wyoming has been, I think, one of the very, if not only, one of the very few states that sees a gradual increase every year in hunter and angler participation, not just doing, being involved, but making application for the different licenses that we have available. So we're seeing an increase in that, but it became very apparent this year within the with the pandemic, the uh, COVID pandemic mm-hmm. going on. So we've seen a lot of influx from non-residents come into Wyoming because we are a small state, very few people, hundred thousand square miles with five hundred and sixty thousand people. So there's a lot of a lot of open space here. Um, it's one of the things I love about Wyoming is the the diversity of the landscapes you know we've got everything from cornfields to the most majestic mountains in the country and everything in between and the vastness of the land when you get in some parts of wyoming i mean there's a stretch between here and where i my permanent residence i've got 130 miles of no cell coverage wow. it's just it's just vast nothing's out there except pronghorns and mule deer and elk and sage grass so
1: yeah, it's it's super beautiful for anyone who's come here. And I think you were saying that because there was so much interest in buying licenses, the state had to cap. Was it out of state or yeah, was it resident? Yeah, we, we
0: actually, uh, uh, for a short period of time during the initial start of the pandemic, um, that we shut down the non-resident three and short, short-term fishing licenses because we were getting such an influx of neighboring states coming out of those big city centers into Wyoming to kind of escape the, the COVID madness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we had to kind of slow it down.
1: Did people complain about it? I bet there were uh, a lot of complaints. There was. <laughs> yeah, there were
0: some complaints. But I think it was the right thing to do, you know. Yeah. Because a lot, as you well know, at, at that early stage, in the there was a lot of unknowns. Right. So we felt it was the best thing to do for our residents to kind of hold that down until we became a little more educated on what we, what we were dealing with.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another issue mm. I wanted to talk about. You were telling us the story about uh, mountain goats, mm-hmm. and I remember this was a national story. Was it Grand Teton? I think it's right Grand Teton. where uh, mm-hmm. the National Park Service was just killing these goats by helicopter, and the reason being, I mean, it's superfluous that they were doing it. Hunter should have done it, and I think you participated in it, and you're going to talk about it. But uh, for people listening who don't understand the context. Uh, they are kind of seen as a non-native species and they're kind of intermingling with uh, bighorn sheep and other species. So there was contention over the park rangers killing them by helicopter. So talk about your involvement with that and and why, why were they doing that instead of letting hunters do that?
0: Right. Well, I, I, and I was very vocal about it because, uh, you, you know, Wyoming, even though we have a, over a million big game animals, our, our mule deer numbers are struggling. We're, we've been losing mule deer numbers in the state now for years. Our moose populations in some areas are are declining. Our bighorn sheep numbers in some areas are declining. Mountain goats, on the other hand, were climbing. And they're a beautiful animal, highly underrated in my opinion, but an absolutely gorgeous wild animal. But So it all came about where, and, and I'll go back as far as, that may bore you with this, but Back in 1969, the state of Idaho translocated mountain goats into the Snake River Range, would would have been in kind of southeast uh, Idaho. And those animals really flourished. They took Mm -hmm. off. And as a result, that population grew, and they started to expand, and they moved over into Wyoming, south of Grand Teton National Park, and they started making a home there. Well, the same thing happened. That population continued to grow, continued to grow, To the point where Wyoming Game and Fish actually started a mountain goat hunting season in that area, Wyoming near Alpine, Wyoming, about the late 1990s. Well, that again, they found a they found a great place to survive and thrive and grow, build a population. They continued to build and they moved north up into Grand Teton National Park. Well, within the park, and they've you know, they are classified as a invasive species, a non-native species. And the concern was, it was a biological concern, there's a, a remote herd of bighorn sheep within Grand Teton National Park that's isolated. They're a very pure herd of bighorn sheep. And bighorn sheep are very susceptible to disease, mm-hmm. especially in pneumonia. If a bighorn sheep population catches pneumonia, it can literally wipe the herd out. Mountain goats are carriers. They're almost bulletproof. They're very hardy animals. Nothing really seems to bother them, but they do carry the pneumonia pathogens. So the concern was, is when the two animals came together using the same mineral licks, competing for the same food, um, sleeping in the same cliff bands, that they could pass those pneumonia pathogens onto the bighorn sheep and wipe out that very exotic herd of bighorn sheep that's been there for hundreds of years. So that was the idea to get behind eradicating the the mountain goats within Mm -hmm. Grand Teton National Park. There was a loud voice of people, including me, that was totally against the program. I did not believe that those, those two animals had been intermingling for years, and there was no evidence that the bighorn sheep population was going down because of it. But the concern was there. it was a park mandate, so we weren't going to get around the park mandate. They were going to take the goats out. So when that became evident to me as a, not only as a sportsman but a game and fish commissioner, I felt the next best move was to let sportsmen go in there and help them with that eradication process. Mm-hmm. Well, back in the day when they set up Grand Teton National Park back in the late 20s, hunting was not allowed in the park. And it still isn't today. They do some elk elk hunting there. But that was part of the the park's original documents when they first uh, established the park in 1929 Mm -hmm. that elk hunting could be done as a management tool. Well, through a loud voice, we built up a lot of people writing into the National Park Service and trying to get them to shut this thing down because they were they had plans to go in with aerial gunners and just mm-hmm. kill every mountain goat in the park. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, while they were building that plan, we built up a coalition of people writing and complaining and working on the park. And it wasn't going where, we felt it wasn't going anywhere. So as a game and fish commissioner, of course the game and fish got involved because they were helping them watch these, and the game and fish supported the science behind it. Um, you know, game and fish loves mountain goats, but bighorn sheep were were very important to the state as well. But it just, the culling of the mountain goats and killing them with aerial gunners and leaving those carcasses to rot on the hillside just does not fit any Wyoming values. Mm-hmm. Wyoming really values harvesting a big game animal, being to take that animal out and use that resource to feed families. So we got to the point where the Game and Fish Commission drafted a resolution condemning the aerial gunning operation. We sent that on to the Grand Teton National Park um, uh, powers to be. They declined it. They were moving forward with the aerial gunning. We got Governor Gordon involved. Governor Gordon drafted a very pointed letter sent it to the national Grand Teton National Park officials. They pushed that aside. Really? Really. <laughs> so Governor Gordon's office at that time got a hold of the Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt. David Bernhardt, who oversees the National Park System, and he called and gave them a cease and desist order. By this time, they had already started the aerial gunning operations. That would have been in February 2020. They went in one day and they killed 36 mountain goats, slaughtered them, left them laying on the mountainside, but they got it shut down. So as a result, <clears throat> as somebody that was highly against the whole program, the next best solution was, to, as I said, to let sportsmen go in and have a crack at it to try to help them manage this problem. So to the Grand Teton National Park's credit, they done just that. And they put together a program, got kicked off this fall, and it was basically an application process for up to six people per team could make application to the park service to go in there for a certain period of time, five days, Um, and try to take as many mountain goats as you could within that five-day period that they granted you. So they got quite a response on that. They opened the, the application process in August. It was a very short window. You got your application in. Then they, of all the people and all the teams that applied, they drew X amount of, and I don't know the exact number, X amount of teams, and they started September 14th. They broke the park up into five different areas, And every week, a team would go into that area and try to take as many mountain goats as they could. They started September 14th. Luckily, I went in with my son-in-law, who was our team lead. He managed all the application process and took care of all that. Um, So I had my son-in-law, my brother, my son-in-law's father and a family friend that we made application and and we were drawn as one of the, the successful teams. And we went in in October, uh, October 17th and hunted through the 21st and took seven goats. Wow. So they now they have now ended the program simply because of weather. The the Grand Teton National Park chief shut the program down about the first of November. They were going to run it through the 14th of November, but the weather shut them down. So but they ended up taking 43 goats. The hunters did, or qualified volunteers were not we're not really hunters because we're not able to take any of the trophy parts of the animal out. We we could not take the hides, mm. nor the horns of the animal. We had to leave those in the field, and we could only take the meat out. Um, so we're we're known as qualified volunteers. Um, but they took 43. The aerial gunners took out 36, and the National Park Service estimates 100 to 125 animals within the park boundaries. So there's a few animals left between those two. Um, There's 70 some animals that were taken this year. So they may run that for another year. I don't know that. I haven't seen that yet. If that if that's a decision that's been made yet, but I would like to see them do it one more year. Give some more people a very unique opportunity to experience. Grand Teton National Park in the outdoors in a very remote part of our state and uh, then after that if you know they have a few left then I would support them going in and kind of mopping up the last few with aerial gunners.
1: That's so too. fascinating yeah because I had heard of this story and I was like
0: <clears throat> aerial
1: gunners taking out my mountain goats I'm like this is so strange it's almost like uh hiring i think in a local context for me it would be like uh our county officials hiring uh i think government contractors to wipe out excess white-tailed deer Mm -hmm. i think i don't know if it was them or members of the uh department of wildlife and department of wildlife resources we just changed our uh, agency name from vdgif to this new uh less uh, sportsman i guess uh focused uh, agency but it still has the same mission statement of course mm-hmm. but they wanted to appeal to a broader base of people but i forget if it was county officials who were deployed to take out excess white-tailed deer or if it was the game agency that hired people to do it not hunters but like they excluded hunters from opportunities to do that when mm-hmm. we have a very vibrant archery program so it's kind of like that but i was like that's a complete waste of resources how much taxpayer money goes into it when hunters who are best equipped or suitably equipped to do so, can come right. in and, and do their part to help.
0: Right. You know, and, and part of it for me was is that uh, not only that, and that's, that was a big part of it, to u- be able to utilize that resource rather than just leave it waste on the, on the hillside. But part of it for me was is that the, our, our game and fish department worked hand-in-hand hand with the National Park Service mm-hmm. to monitor the goats, monitor the bighorn sheep, even though we have no jurisdiction over them as a game and fish agency. Our biologists and our time and our resources were being consumed to manage the goats and manage the bighorn sheep. Well, those resources are all paid for. Wyoming Game and Fish gets no money from our our general fund. It's our whole department and commission is funded by hunter and angler dollars. So I felt it was only right that all of their money that's being spent to manage these animals within a National Park System, that they should have the opportunity to harvest some of those animals and bring them out and utilize them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense, practically speaking, and uh, just so that the the species can be properly managed uh, without people superseding and coming in and just causing a controversy like it did. So that's good that an amenable solution was reached, and uh, you were able to participate in that program firsthand. And does the mountain goat taste good? I think people will be curious to know if they do.
0: It it, it absolutely does. I mean, my (laughs) wife and I are big fans of Mediterranean uh, cuisine, Mm -hmm. and uh, so we took some of the uh, shanks from the mountain goats and we— she found some great Mediterranean recipes and we roasted the whole shanks and had family over and enjoyed a, a feast of uh, cabrito.
1: Ooh, that sounds so good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and it was good. And, and, you know, a couple of things have happened in, in conjunction with all of this. The Wyoming Game and Fish Department on the west side of uh, Grand Teton National Park, have, we have now created another hunt area for mountain goats interesting that is a, a, a that is a draw unit, but it doesn't affect your once in a lifetime status for other mountain goat hunts in the state that hunters can make application and this area sets between where they came in from Idaho and where they're migrating north and, and the Grand Teton National port boundary. so we created another hunt area there, and what that the purpose of that is is to try to slow the uh, progression of mountain goats from Alpine, Wyoming, up through there into the park. So if the goats are once removed, then this hunt area that we created should slow the process of them getting back into the park is the idea. And then the the hunt itself, I mean, I I, got to give the Grand Teton National Park folks a lot of credit because they put together a very, very good program. It was well thought out well planned and our game and fish department worked with them hand in hand to help them with a lot of stuff because they're just they just don't do a lot of that so they needed the expertise of our department and out of our jackson region to help them they've done an incredible job laying it out how well it worked it really flowed smoothly uh safety being a high high concern for the for the qualified volunteers when they were in the field we had to check in every morning check out every night make sure we were safe Mm -hmm. so on and so forth so they've done a really good job
1: That's good. Yeah, I mean, that cooperation should be taking place, I think, of all the different channels of government. And I'm worried about how that's going to happen with potentially a change in government. And it seems like it has kind of been like these last few years I've observed that it just seems that local, state and federal cooperation has been much better. There are fewer complaints. I mean, nothing is perfect or foolproof, but I feel like a lot of people have felt that they can resolve certain issues and they have representation in Washington, D.C., or in their state government. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you didn't have that apparatus in place, then you would have had the complete wipeout right. of the mountain goats. Right. So I feel we should be really lucky right now for however long we, we still have this. Uh, for a few years, I don't think we're going to have this similar kind of cooperative right. mechanism in place. But I think that's what people should take away from how conservation can work. Exactly. And 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 fully operate.
0: Right. And and it was. I mean, it, once, once everybody got their... They're kind of their defense shields down, their Star Wars shields down, and said, okay, here's where we're at. Now let's, how can we move forward and accomplish the goals we want to accomplish? And it works. If people can just set that stuff aside, all that personal feelings, those personal egos aside, and do what needs to be done for the betterment of the people and the resource. It can happen. Another thing I really learned from this is, is with my commission post, is, is, uh, you know, people ask me, well, how, you know, how, how do we make change? And I told them the same thing that Governor Friedenthal told, told me so many years ago. Get involved. If something interests you, you have to get involved. And then you have to get other people involved. And you build a coalition to make a change. You can't come into one meeting, voice your opinion, and leave and expect things to happen. It takes effort. Mm-hmm. And that this really proved it to me. I got very vocal. I got other people that were very vocal, my son-in-law being one, I gotta give this young man a lot of credit. We went to every meeting, and he was very vocal. He got vocal on social media. He built a coalition, I built a coalition. And people still have the power if they're willing to put the effort in it. It does work.
1: Yeah, I think that's what people should take away from your story on this, and I think just hearing these different conflict resolution uh, stories that do come about. And we can segue into this topic, too, because you being someone who's worked in oil and gas, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, just because we often hear that extractive resource management and conservation can't go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it firsthand that that's patently false. They're not mutually exclusive. And in Western states like this, you have to have cooperation between industry and agencies. And then also... Uh, Just in terms of wildlife rehabilitation efforts, I've seen it in Virginia, I've seen it in different states talking to different people that those two industries, which are sometimes in conflict with one another, they do work in concert with one another. And I was just wondering your thoughts on that, kind of aside from your conservation work, but what you kind of see with that, because I think people forget that that can also play into conservation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who hunt and fish also work in these different energy sectors and energy businesses because it's profitable they can make a living and they want to tend to the land too it's not just Mm -hmm. you know extracting digging holes uh, extracting energy fuel sources whatnot they're actually trying to also simultaneously conserve the land so what are your kind of thoughts on that and do we see a future with kind of that cooperation between energy and and conservation or is it going to be in limbo
0: you know, I, th- I think, I mean, that's my my dream. That's what I would like to see because I really believe it can happen. And I really believe that would benefit wildlife more if they could come together rather than constantly, you know, butting heads over what it doesn't matter, whatever the issue is, they want to knock heads. And all I can think about sitting on this commission is the money that oil and gas spends to fight every permit. If we could If we could work with them And rather than have them spend that money fighting every environmental group out there, just think of what could be done for wildlife if we had that money spent on wildlife habitat projects, highway crossings, um, fence removals, fence construction, wildlife-friendly fencing, all of those millions of dollars that I've seen pissed away fighting, and they still drill, but they spend it all fighting how much more that would benefit wildlife than what they're doing just amazes me. So I would love to see that happen. And that's my dream is to try to help make that happen because mm-hmm. I think there is ways to do it. You know, people that work in the oil and gas in Wyoming, they're, they're not here for the sandy beaches and, <laughs> and warm weather and palm trees. <laughs> no. They don't stand out on a rig floor in the wintertime at 40 below zero jerking a wet string out of the ground from 10,000 feet down and getting doused in water and condensate because of sandy beach. They're here because of wildlife. They're here because of the angling, the wildlife, the hunting opportunities, the camping opportunities, the outdoor activities. That's why they live here. That's why they work here. They don't want it destroyed. They know what's going on out there. It's It's very simple to me how this can be done. I mean, The Wyoming Range Mule Deer Herd is a world-class mule deer herd. World-class. It's unbelievable. Everybody in the country that knows anything about mule deer knows about the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Herd. Well, their wintering grounds is right smack dab in the middle of an oil and gas field that's been there since 1928. Wow. That's where they come out of the mountains and they winter around all of these oil and gas wells. That's their environment. They oil and gas wolves do not bother them. They sleep on the pads. They use the condensate tanks for shade in the summertime when they're there. Pronghorns use it. Birds use it. It can coexist, and it does, but people don't see it. They, You have to see it to believe it.
1: Yeah, I think many of them are sheltered off from that process and the different uh, levels of Uh, going into extraction, extraction, processing, all that. And I I still need to learn a little bit more myself in terms of the terminology, but I fully support it. And I've seen it firsthand with our Kurd being on reclaimed coal lands and just that mechanism in place. And from what I've heard from you and others who live out West, how that coexistent is very palpable, Mm well-known, established, and... I think we can argue that the Wyoming model and kind of the Western model should be exported kind of to the right. rest of the country. Right. And it does work, and people kind of scoff at it because they're like, well, I live in my New York City apartment, and I hate that this is going on. So these are people who are trying to dictate the terms of how all this happens, living very remotely from the situation. They have nothing, no knowledge of, of what goes on. They don't understand the people behind it. They don't understand what happens, the coexistence. They don't understand what goes into it and how people don't want to simply just extract and drill and, and use up all the resource or, or mm-hmm. devastate or the land or, or harm wildlife or dirty, clean water, that that would be counterintuitive to right. what everyone does for, for outdoor recreation. And, and I think they just don't understand and they don't want to understand they're very intolerant of that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. they want that preservationist, no-touching, no multiple use management sustained yield type mm-hmm. uh, model to be in place and we've seen in countries i've, I've observed in different countries where they have that it doesn't work we right. have such a great system in place and i think many people are asking for problems if we eliminate let's say energy from the equation mm-hmm. and it's not because you're in the pocket of oil and gas but it just makes sense and it's practical to to keep what we have going and and i think as technology advances how people Get and extract and obtain oil and gas is very safe now. Coal is uh, uh, taken in in a far more cleaner fashion. I know that, having been down there, I was told about that. Well drilling is a lot safer. Like all these different processes are much safer now than they were when Mm -hmm. they were first being developed. And and, but so why why is that disconnect? Why aren't they understanding that? Like as technology advances, that advances and the conservation. ethos is now at the center of all these different industries.
0: You know, I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, but I think a lot of it is just the the, the constant media banging on oil and gas and uh, greenhouse gases and global climate change is created from oil and natural gas and the cons- consumption of those two items. They worry about oil spills, they worry about Pipelines breaking and, and spilling, and my argument is is how much more organic substance is there than oil it's just plant and animal matter that's built from time built from time and pressure there's nothing more organic than oil and natural gas. it comes from the earth. it is the earth. How can it destroy it you know i, I don 't understand that I think a lot of it has to do with with just the, 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 the global climate change push and oil and gas being at the heart of that and changing our, our atmosphere.
1: It's a convenient um, scapegoat, too. They're like, let's pin the blame on oil and gas for all the problems.
0: Right, right. And people, I don't think, understand how, I mean, how much of their daily lives depend on oil and gas products. Yes. From their clothing to their shoes to their tires to you name it. The petroleum products are basically in everything that we use and consume mm-hmm. daily. It's not just gasoline for your car or heat for your home. It's, it, it, it's amazing where petroleum products are in our everyday life.
1: Yeah, Vaseline, and, makeup,
0: just about anything. Right. And I mean, like I say, oil and gas workers, and, oil, and, and I go, I'll go back, and I've said this many times, that, that oil and gas, they needed kind of a swift kick in the ass back in the 70s when I broke out because they weren't doing things that were right. They were just Mm -hmm. getting away. They were doing anything they wanted to. So the environmental movement has been positive in that way. It has forced them to do some things to take better care of our planet and to keep that front and center. Mm -hmm. So I commend them for that. But as humans do, almost every time we start something good, we take it to the extreme. Mm -hmm. And now it's to the point where it's, it's, It's ridiculous some of the stuff that they're requiring oil and gas operators to do. It has no effect. It doesn't benefit anything. It's just cost. Mm -hmm. Let's make it cost more and maybe they'll not do it.
1: Yeah, it's a a way to kind of uh, overwhelm them, control to make them disincentivized to want to do it.
0: You know, I was lucky enough to sit on, I was appointed by Governor Gordon last year. He chose eight members from the state to sit on a migration council and help draft a migration policy because Western Wyoming has one of the largest ungulate migrations on the North American continent. The mule deer migrate from Jackson Hole, clear down to the Red Desert of Wyoming. They call it the Red Desert to Hoback Migration, 200 miles. These mule deer move every spring and every fall. And, a lot of that goes through some of the most prolific natural gas fields in the, the continental United States. So as a result, there's a lot of pushback when they start leasing uh, for oil and gas drilling rights. And and I'm a I'm a proponent for that. I mean, I think we have to protect some of of what we have. You know, well, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have to protect certain migration quarters because it is shrinking And, you know, we come up with a very doable plan. You know, when we get into stopover areas where these animals stop, where they kind of get on green grass and they can fill up as they move north up into the mountains and same thing coming back out. Stopover areas is gonna have very limited use, surface use. Um, And then there's high traffic, medium traffic, low traffic areas that each one of those will be taken into consideration. Before any permits, before any gas wells are drilled, they'll work with the game and fish department and the expertise that they have on where to place these drill sites to have the least impact on ungulate movement. And then, what we, we have areas that they call bottlenecks, natural bottlenecks, where the animals are forced between whether it be a natural structure or a man made structure where their migration areas are, are pinched down into a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And we, we're going to have no no surface activity in that area now we can't do anything about private ground if somebody goes in there and develops that and puts houses all over we Mm -hmm. can't do anything about Mm -hmm. that But on federal ground state ground we can work with that Mm -hmm. and we can control that so and and in my view it's a very simple thing because i mean we have interstate 80 that goes 405 miles across this state Mm. and you know it's about a mile wide corridor mile-and-a-half corridor across that state, or across the state. We don't drill in that, but yet we get the resource. We directional drill underneath it, we pull the resource, and we can do the same thing with these bottlenecks. So we can protect those. Mm -hmm. We can keep that for the wildlife. Mm -hmm. So there's ways that we can work with that and get that done and accomplish that without affecting industry. I trust my industry enough to know that if there's a resource underneath that bottleneck, they're going to get to it one way or the other through their trajectory. Directional drilling or the technology that they're constantly developing. Mm -hmm. So it can be done. It just takes people coming together.
1: And people getting out of their, taking off their blinders and coming to see the process firsthand. Because I think most people have never been on an oil rig. They've never seen hydraulic fracking in the practice. They've never seen just how these different interests come together to help with these wildlife migration corridors, everything. People are just. far removed from the situation, so they have no idea, so they get flustered and frustrated with that. And, yeah, I encourage my listeners to kind of take more of a vested interest in doing that. And I'm trying to educate myself more with it because I just, my dad works in construction, so I I very much am familiar with energy, the importance of it. His industry has been somewhat compromised by that uh, kind of extreme environmental movement, too. And without certain resources, he can't do his profession. So I think people forget that when you're calling for eliminating for the basic energy sources we consume, it trickles down, like you were saying, to petroleum products. So it's like, it's not just going to stop with filling up your car. It's going to affect down the channel of command of different products that we use. Right. Like your iPhone, minerals. If you don't mine, you're not going to have your iPhone. You're not going to have your smartphone. Mm -hmm. If you forego... Uh, oil and gas, you won't have your petroleum products, makeup, uh, different tools, car parts, all these different things we rely on and, and can't live without here because we're very spoiled in the United States with, with all these luxuries that we have. But yeah, that's something that I try to educate people. And maybe people can learn from you and, and others in, implanted in the industry to, to not really have such a negative view of it and to see what you do beyond just right. your daily
0: work. Right. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think... Um, that I try, to, I try to get people to understand, especially the, 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 the little special interest groups that are always just beating out anything, anything industry-related, oil and gas, mining, whatever it is. These are the same people that live in Jackson Hole, Teton County, Yellow, the home of Yellowstone National Park, Grand Teton National Park. There's 5 million people that's the, that's the city of Los Angeles, California. Mm-hmm. Five million people come into that valley every year from May to September. Five million people. So you know what's happening from May to September? All that while, and they've, they've got people up there, they're, they're hiking every trail. There's 248 trails, miles of hiking trails, 300 miles of highway. There's uh, 300 and some odd remote campsites. There's people hiking, mountain biking, backpacking, mountain climbing, fishing on every creek, lake. They're everywhere. Five million of them from May to September. All the while, our big game animals are dropping babies and trying to raise them. Mm -hmm. But they don't, that's not a concern to them. Mm. But drilling an oil and gas well in a sea of sagebrush that uses one acre of ground. That's the end of the world. <laughs> they don't see that. They've got blinders on. What they do... I mean, if, any, if animals can survive in that environment and raise young, that gas well out there is not going to hurt them. It's just not.
1: Yeah, and that's a good, something good to reinforce, I guess, with that. Uh, with that. And, and you've covered so much ground in our podcast recording, and I'm super grateful... For you sharing your wisdom, your story—I could listen to you for hours, and we could record this end end upon end. But how can people connect with you? How can they book a hunting trip with you? How can they learn more about your work with the Fish and Wildlife Commission?
0: Well, I I mean, I don't do any fancy advertising. I got a Facebook page that I'm very—I'm terrible at keeping up on, but that's really about the only thing that I've got. And it's just word of mouth, you know, and I don't class myself as an outfitter. I've got a hunting camp is what I got. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell people. If you're coming here to be pampered and, you know, eat gourmet food, it's not going to happen. This is a hunting camp. You bring your own groceries. You eat when you want, eat what you want. If you want to get up and go hunting, you can. If you don't, I don't care. I'll take you out and show you what I know and put you in the places that I think will give you the best uh, opportunity for, for a nice experience. And that's how I run the place. And I just do it myself.
1: That's awesome. And what's so the Facebook page for those listening?
0: Solitude Ranch Outfitters.
1: Wonderful. And, and any other social media or website? That's just that's it. it?
0: Just, a, just a very poorly run Facebook page.
1: <laughs> I can give you some but tips. But a lot of
0: good word of mouth.
1: <laughs> that's good. But I can give you some tips if you ever need some. All right. I'll, I'll send it to you and Pam. Right. But Mike, it has been such a pleasure sitting down with you for my podcast. I appreciate your wisdom, your story, and for you opening up your ranch to us to come sure. hunt with you.
0: Well, I've enjoyed having you come again.
1: If you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Schmid, make sure you subscribe and follow the podcast to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. And especially follow us on Apple Podcasts, which is our largest trafficker of listenership. About 60% of my listeners hail from Apple. And if you like the podcast, you like the guests we've been having, the content, what have you, go leave us a review. That really isn't something noteworthy to do, but it helps me kind of get a good pulse as to how our podcast is being received by people. Kind of a good barometer of listenership, but downloads are especially key. And if you want to support the podcast, that's all I ask of you guys. Just download, listen to past episodes, leave some reviews, share the podcast link with your friends and associates who may be interested in the content we have here. Also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you can... Keep up to speed with updates, learn what guests I'll be having, see what topics we discuss, and the like. And if you've listened to this entire episode, I'm going to be name dropping tomorrow's special guest for the podcast. And we're going to stick with the Wyoming theme, I think, for this week and maybe next week. I'm still waiting for a few episodes to pander out. But tomorrow's guest, if you were patient enough to listen to the end and listen to the full interview will be none other than Senator-elect Cynthia Lummis. Senator-elect Lummis is a very interesting political figure. She took a break after serving in the house of representatives as the Wyoming at large representative recently won her bid for U S Senate after Senator Mike Enzi announced his retirement. So she will be the first woman from Wyoming ever to serve in this capacity as U S Senator. And she Campaigned a little bit at length with a conservation message, support of gray wolf delisting, grizzly bear management in the states, and much more. So, I think she's going to have a lot of interesting things to say regarding that. So, that'll come out tomorrow night. I'm going to be interviewing her in the afternoon. So, if you listened, that's the special announcement I want you guys to take away from this. Uh, You don't want to miss it. I think her remarks are going to be interesting, especially going into. The new Congress that is coming in next year in January. And we're gonna keep you abreast with other stuff happening. And many more senators hopefully will be coming on Senators Elect, Senators that won re-election, and other lawmakers too. I'm going to try to get more members of the House Natural Resources Committee, Western Caucus, and other similar conferences to come talk about things, especially in wake of the change in government, what they plan to do, how they plan to hold the line. And to talk about fishing and hunting, too, because that's always fun to talk about with lawmakers. Thanks for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for my interview with Senator-elect Cynthia Lummis tomorrow evening. And stay the course. Hope you're going fishing and hunting and getting out to nature, especially as it looks like we're going to be going into lockdowns more. So you can social distance, be one with nature, get fishing and hunting and more.